1 Peter 5, verses 5b to 11. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the, pro- at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your sisters and brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Our reading is from John chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. First they led Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, grant us to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Give us vigilance and integrity to perform our faith in obedience to your will, and may we not be ashamed of your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we linger in the hour of Jesus' glory towards the cross. Now, as we heard from Tim last Sunday, Jesus' hour is the same hour of darkness, the hour of Satan, the time granted to the devil to give everything that he's got, to unleash his total fury against God and his anointed one. Now, that same hour, the most unnatural alliance had formed Jewish and Roman powers together, the religious and the irreligious together, the pious and the pagan, the clean and the unclean together, conspiring, as it were, against all of heaven. Now, as though the whole world, the whole world was represented in this coalition, they plotted against Jesus for the ultimate overthrow of all of history. Now, the ultimate power of Babel, as it were, were to be built, the Roman cross, for the world to again try to the top of heaven and grab God by the throat and rip him off from his throne. Why do the nations conspire? A people's plot in vain against the Lord and against his Messiah, reads the second psalm. And what are the engines of evil without the individual gears, the individual parts? What are the worldly structures and powers and institutions without their pawns, their puppets, their purveyors? It's here in our gospel reading that we see another contour, another shape to satanic evil. Now, we had learned how the devil took personal shape in Judas's treachery. We're seeing Satan maneuver in his principality while he rallied the institutions and structures against Jesus. Now, this time, Satan will infiltrate Jesus' innermost ranks and incite the chief disciple, Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends who stands as a figure representing us and the whole church to disavow and deny Jesus Christ. So this spiritual warfare scenario is not so much a us versus them with the church of God right here and the enemies of God over there. We're all vulnerable. The seed of sin lay dormant in every human heart as in every Christian. And Satan seeks to germinate that seed in every single person. Now we will see in Peter that same seed germinate and bud and bear evil fruit the dark seed of denial. And then, in stark contrast, in the middle of Peter's denying Jesus, we see Jesus standing before his accuser with the light of his sovereign rule, with the light of his sovereignty and authority. See, in our gospel reading, we will see in Peter the darkness of denial. In contrast, we will see Jesus' light of his sovereign authority. So please turn with me in your Bibles to John 18, in verse 13. Now, Jesus had just been arrested and was brought before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the ruling high priest that year. Now, Annas had earlier been the high priest, but was deposed by Valerius Gratus. He was the procurator of Judea before Pontius Pilate. Now, Annas nonetheless retained priority and influence among the Jewish elites, so he held functional power and maintain control behind the scenes by nepotism. See, he positioned all of his relatives, like Caiaphas, into places of power. Now, it is in this backdrop of political power play, even as Jesus will stand accused before Annas, with his hands bound and his feet chained up, we're given this ironic hint that Jesus was in total control 
over the situation. In verse 14, John the Evangelist reminds us that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Sanhedrin to get rid of Jesus because that would be most expedient to avert, avert uh, potential suppressive action by the Romans. Now, Caiaphas thought that was a clever thing to do and to recommend, but he played right into the sovereign hands of God. What Caiaphas had unjustly intended towards nationalistic interest and to preserve his hegemony unlocked the floodgates of heaven to pour out God's blessing over all the world. Jesus was in total control of the situation. Then we read in verse 15, the camera shifts, camera shifts to Simon Peter and another unidentified disciple, most likely John the evangelist himself. They were closely trailing the mob into the gated home of Annas. Now the rest of Jesus' followers ran away from, for their lives so to fulfill the scriptures. The sheep will scatter without the shepherd. That Jesus would keep all of his friends safe. That none would be lost except Judas. Only Peter and John stuck around. But already here we see a tear. We see a tear showing along the seams of Peter's resolve. Yes, he stuck close to Jesus out of real concern for him. But Peter kept his distance as not to be linked with Jesus. It was just earlier that that Peter had lashed out at the mob with a sword. The moment perhaps finally for him, so he thought, to prove his professed loyalty to Jesus and to implicitly disprove Jesus' words, he predicted that Peter would disown him. Peter's ferocious display was a misguided attempt at redemptive violence. As we heard from Tim last Sunday, he thought he was being brave. He thought he was being loyal. He thought he could rescue Jesus by violence. So he swung at the mob still dazed from the nap in in the garden, intending to hit a larger target, but clumsily sliced off Malchus's right ear, one of Annas' slaves. Now Jesus rebuked Peter, put away the sword. That was the second occasion for humility. See, the first was when Jesus warned Peter, set him aside, warned him, you'll deny me, Peter. Not only once, not only twice, but three times. That should have given Peter some significant pause. Now, this time in our gospel reading, Peter is about to enter his third test. Continue in verse 15. So John was let into the courtyard because the slave girl who held the, the gate recognized John. John's connection to Annas may be through his father Zebedee's fishmonger business that may have supplied directly to the high priests and his relatives, but that's only speculative. So John vouched for Peter and got him in. But as Peter passed through the gate, the slave slave girl asked Peter out of her innocent curiosity, verse 17, you also are not one of this man's disciple, are you? Peter answered, I am not. I am not. It's the absolute negation of Jesus' self-revelation earlier in the garden. When a mob asked Jesus if he was whom they were looking for, Jesus said, I am. The utterance of the name of Yahweh subdued the crowd. They collapsed in front of Jesus. But here a lone slave girl asked Peter, are you a follower of Jesus too? In utter contradiction to Jesus' words, Peter answered, 
I am not. I am not. A dark seed of denial had budded. Peter may not have realized how he answered the girl. That was not a threatening question. And that's coming from a lowliest slave girl. See, in ancient reckoning, a female child slave was at the lowest rung of the class hierarchy. Peter, who had lashed out at the mob with a sword, is here now flinching from a slave girl's innocent question. Perhaps it was an impulsive response, a very typical thing for Peter to do. He's just wanting to get through the gate, to get, there, get into the courtyard as quickly as he could. There's no time to be held up by the slave girl. She was not worth the hassle to prove or defend his loyalty to Jesus. Peter probably evaluated his response to be the most practical, right? Perhaps if the time came, it would be more worth it to out himself in front of the Romans or the Jewish officials or even the high priest. This was not the moment to shine the Christian light. Why waste that for just a slave girl? Now, elsewhere in Luke's gospel, before Jesus was about to be arrested, Jesus took Peter aside and warned him that Satan, the devil himself, had requested him for permission to sift every one of his disciples like wheat. Sifting separated the grain from the chaff, meaning to test the person's quality. Not only did this reveal Jesus' sovereign control over Satan, he was showing absolute care for Peter by letting him in on the devil's subterfuge against him. But even with these divine revelations from the hidden spiritual realm, Peter insisted that he saw better, that he knew better. Peter insisted it would be impossible for him to deny Jesus. Jesus, you're wrong. Now, Peter had succumbed to what the Roman Catholic Church calls the vice of presumption. The vice of presumption. It's while it's a derivative of pride, humility, it's not its opposing virtue. Rather, presumption is the opposite of hope. Presumption is the opposite of the virtue of hope. See, because it, presumption displaces hope away from God. It denies the supernatural order of how God stacked up the cosmos. It repositions hope to the self, to the natural, to the human, to the earthly, to the derivative. Now, for ourselves, how do we presume upon God, even as Christians? How do we presume upon God? When we expect God to answer our prayers because we've been well-behaved, or even that we've suffered too much, we presume upon God. We don't turn to God first in prayer, but first look into our wallets for the credit card, for the OHEP card, you look into your TFSA, you look into your RSP. You presume upon God. When life is going well and then it suddenly all goes to crap and then blame God for it, we presume upon God. How often do we presume upon Him? Peter presumed hope from Jesus. He presumed hope. He assumed hope for himself when Peter insisted that he will be the one to save Jesus, that Jesus had no cause for concern, though all should fall away. I'll never abandon you, Jesus. Peter knew better. Peter saw better. But Peter did not see the devil's sieve 
right in front of him. As soon as Peter stepped through the gate, having just renounced Jesus in front of a slave girl, Peter was caught in Satan's net. You're not one of his disciples too, are you? I am not. In Toronto, we don't have to pay at all with our skin and blood for being followers of Jesus. It's generally comfortable to be Christian in Canada. But the dark seed of denial takes deep root in us, not when we disavow Jesus upon intense interrogation or the threat of harm or loss. The dark seed of denial germinates in us when we disobey the commands of Jesus, when we disobey him. The commands of Jesus that require more from us, the ones that inconvenience us, the ones that would cost us even more, our savings, our schedule, our future, the ones that we so easily ignore and pass that on to the other Christian who's more spiritual than us. Disobeying Jesus is denying we ever knew him, denying that we ever walked with him, that we dined with him, ate his body and blood, or that we ever loved him. Jesus' words said this, Who is the one who loves me, who knows me, my Father, but the one who has my commandments and keeps them? If you love me, you'll keep my word. And in the end, Jesus will say to those who say they're Christian, but they're defiant against his laws, I never knew you. Be gone from my sight, you who practice lawlessness. Putting another way, Jesus will deny professing Christians who continually denies him. Jesus will deny professing Christians who continually deny him in unrestrained rebellion, in perpetual disregard to his laws. You and I are in danger of this demonic evil in ourselves. We are in danger of this, and Satan would love to grow that in each one of us. As we read on in verse 18, As soon as Peter had just denied Jesus, he went straight towards the charcoal fire that was prepared. The officers and slaves were gathered around there, keeping themselves warm. It reads, Peter also was with them, standing, warming himself. This is the literary twist of irony. Peter strayed into the company of those who had just arrested and tied Jesus up. Now the light around the charcoal fire had exposed the darkness in Peter's heart. He was now warming himself with the mob, cozying up with the officers and soldiers, counted as one of them who had laid their hands on Jesus, tied them up, and led him away into the night. Now the charcoal fire will reappear later in the end of God, John's gospel, not as light exposing Peter's guilt, but as a setting around which Peter will be restored by the risen Jesus. Now, that will be for another time. And then the camera shifts indoors with Jesus standing before Annas. Here we see the light of his sovereignty. In verse 20, Annas questions Jesus about his disciples and teachings. Now, this, was, this wasn't a court trial per se. There would be witnesses to accuse or back Jesus up. If anything, this was more of an audience with Annas. So Jesus explained that he'd always taught openly in public. Everything he said and taught could be verified by almost anyone in Israel. But notice that Jesus never once mentioned anything about his disciples. Here again is the shepherd protecting his sheep, 
Jesus standing alone, firm in his absolute care for Peter, for John, for all of his disciples. He alone will bear the cost. The shepherd's life for the sheep. And finally, Jesus invites Annas himself. Go ask around yourself. See what others have said about me. Investigate the matter yourself, Jesus invited the high priest. And one of the guards did not like Jesus' tone, smacked him right across the face. Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus did not react or recoil. Again, Jesus was invitational to the guard as he was to Annas. He invited the guard, consider what you did. Was there anything untrue in my response? Was there anything offensive in what I said or how I said it? Or even if there was something wrong, did that warrant physical abuse? Now the high priest had nothing to say to that. He had seen enough of Jesus firsthand. He was not persuaded that Jesus was anything more than how notorious he was made out to be. So he dismissed him to Caiaphas. Let Caiaphas, my son-in-law, handle Jesus. Now, I mean, how do we see Jesus' light of his, his sovereignty in this very weird, peculiar audience? It's a very brief moment. Where is his sovereignty there? Now, whenever we imagine being totally in control, we imagine not letting anything bad happen to us or to the people that we love. We would naturally and rightly choose to keep ourselves and the people we care about from every harm. That's reasonable. If we were in control, nothing bad would happen. But the light of Jesus' sovereignty does not make sense to us. What happened here does not make sense to us if Jesus was in control. Through all this, Jesus remained bound and under guard, but he was in total control of the situation. He was betrayed and falsely detained against his will, yet it was within his perfect will to be betrayed and arrested. It doesn't make sense to us. Now take the literary nature of Jesus' audience with Annas. Even though Annas was the one interrogating Jesus, Jesus was the one leading the conversation. Jesus was the one leading the conversation. He had absolute control over the dialogue. We never hear a word from Annas. Then when the guards struck Jesus in the face, Jesus called him out on it, exposing the guards' misplaced piety for the high priest. Jesus became the one interrogating his captors. Jesus became the one interrogating his accusers, exposing the darkness and insecurities in their hearts. Despite the intimidation, the abuse, the threats, Jesus was unyielding. He was truthful, honest all the way. He called out injustice when he needed. He was silent. He, was, he kept the peace when he needed. He submitted himself to the will of his Father. Jesus had total control of the situation. He was heading straight into the lion's mouth. That doesn't make sense to us. But what makes sense to us, really, is Peter. That makes sense to us. Because he'll deny Jesus two more times around the charcoal fire. Because it makes sense to avoid harm. It makes sense to avoid the evil for ourselves. That's what Peter was doing. That's what I would do, naturally. That's perhaps what you would do in the situation. In Martin Scorsese's film, Silence, 
an adaptation of Shusaku's Endo's novel of the same title, we follow these two 17th century Jesuit priests. They were sent to Japan to track down one of their famed colleagues who was supposed to have denied the Catholic faith and became an apostate under the pressures of Japanese persecution. So these two priests, they meet Kichijiro, a recurring character in the film. He became their guide into Japan and connected them with the underground Japanese church. But Kichijiro proved to be most unreliable, the most selfish who easily faltered at any threat to his own life. In the film, Kichijiro denied being a Christian three times before the Japanese officials. He never hesitated to step on the fumie. That was a bronze plate with the engraving of Jesus used to test the loyalty of a suspected Christian. Then at a turning point in the film, Kichijiro sold out one of the Jesuit priests to the imperial inquisitor for 300 pieces of silver. But after each denial of faith, and even after betraying the priest, Kichijiro returned to the same priest to say his confession and to ask for absolution. Kichijiro even snuck into prison where the priest was detained after he had just betrayed him, just to confess and ask for his forgiveness. See, the priest was so disgusted by Kichijiro, he could not even sit to listen to him confess his sin. See, Martin Scorsese intended in Kichijiro to combine both Judas and Peter in that character. Kichijiro was made out to be the most relatable character in the film. He was the foil to the presumption of the Jesuit priest who insisted that he would never deny Jesus in the face of persecution. But in the end, himself stepping on the fumie just to rescue a few Christians threatened by more torture. See, Kichijiro was the most human among his persecuted Christians, even among the supposed paragons of faith that the Jesuit priests were supposed to be. Now what distinguished Kichijiro from the rest was his relentless pursuit to confess his sins, to seek absolution, even to the level of shameless impudence before the priest he had just sold out. This is because Kichijiro had no pretense. He had no presumption. He found no hope in himself but only had the limited understanding that a priest carried God's grace to forgive. Kichijiro knew he was a failure. He knew he was weak. He knew he would always need to ask God for forgiveness. This is what we should realize for ourselves. Our flesh fails. We are now even weak and helpless apart from God's keeping us from falling apart in mind, body, and spirit. We cannot presume upon our own resolve to do what God requires of us. It's God alone who supplies us with the will to obey, the power to be changed. You and I will deny Jesus at one point, maybe even later today after the live stream, going back to being disobedient in our usual stubborn and hidden ways, the sins that we don't even know exist in us in small ways or in big ways. We will deny Jesus. We will be disobedient. God grant us the grace to repent, to keep asking him for forgiveness, to be cleansed from stubborn, cakey sin in our hearts, 
to be supernatural change from the inside out. This is in the end what distinguished Peter from Judas when the rooster finally crowed. Elsewhere in another gospel, it was said that Peter wept bitterly. That is, he was heaving uncontrollably with intense, and sometimes he couldn't know what the emotions were. It just all came out. He was uncontrollably inconsolable. Peter realized that time of his presumption, his misguided sense of valor, his shallow show of Christian loyalty. But much more than that, Peter realized his sin, his betrayal, his cowardice, his human weakness. But much later on, one beautiful morning, the same shepherd Christ, risen from the grave, he called out to Peter from the shore, sit down for breakfast. And there was a charcoal fire at the beach. There Jesus restored Peter completely. Peter was forgiven, restored, changed. And then Jesus let him know of another time of a satanic sifting in his life. And this time, he will not fail. Peter will not fail. Tradition tells us that Peter's eventual martyrdom was when he was crucified upside down, not denying his Lord, not even accepting to die the same way that Jesus did. In our first reading that Jody had read for us, a more mature and elderly Peter had written for us to clothe ourselves with humility. Do not be presumptuous. Peter first, he felt firsthand the sifting of the devil, the bite marks of Satan's teeth as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now he had written to encourage his persecuted church family that they were enduring this severe persecution. He said, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter knew this for himself. He felt the hand of Christ on his shoulder. He looked into the forgiving eyes of Jesus. He tasted the grilled fish that Jesus had cooked. He smelled the charcoal fire. He heard Jesus' tender voice. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Jesus Christ himself will restore us. Confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us as we endure much suffering in life. The testing of our faith by Satan himself. Even when we succumb to his temptations to deny and disobey him. But when we do deny Jesus, when we fall again and again, let's be relentless to run to him, to ask for forgiveness and transformation. It's because Jesus is relentless. He's relentless to love us, to care for us, to forgive us, and to change us from the inside out. He's relentless to come to us with his grace to forgive. Let's come to him. Let's pray. Father, we put no trust in the flesh, but hope in you alone. Spare us from the time of testing that we may be found faithful and obedient. But whenever we fall, give us humility to seek your forgiveness. Let us be impudent in our asking, shameless before your throne. 
Give us grace to repent. Give us grace to change. Grace to be better. Grace to obey. Because we seek the honor and glory of your Son who will always restore, establish, confirm, and strengthen us to the last. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.